Malachi 2, 1 through 9. This is the word of God. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Will you pray with me? Father, as we hear those words... I believe that it's fair to say that we find ourselves wanting to be sure that we are those in your favor and not under your wrath. And so we thank you for the precious blood of Jesus that we sang about. We thank you for the cross of Christ where your wrath was satisfied. And we ask you to shape us and make us into a people who will give true honor to your name. Help us, God. We need your hand upon us. We need your mercies upon us. We need your sanctifying influence to grow us. And we ask for that this day. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. You ever work at a bad job or for a bad boss? A lot of giggles in this room. A friend of mine and I used to commiserate about his difficult work situation because after he was hired, he found out that the boss had no idea what my friend's job description was. And what that meant, if you don't automatically go there, is that the boss could change the expectations without communicating to my friend with any sort of clarity what the expectations were. And everybody else who worked for this boss had a similar role where where maybe this was good one day, maybe he wants this this day, and you never knew when it came time for staff meeting whether you guys had behaved well or poorly because the expectations could change from week to week. Is that familiar to anybody? By the way, it doesn't have to be a boss. It could be a house you grew up in. 
You ever work in a place where the standards of good performance change from week to week, sometimes day to day? You ever, you ever have a boss tell you, this is what I want from you, and then next week tell you, that's not what I want from you? You ever have a boss tell you that quality is the goal above quantity, and then next week tell you that the goal is quantity, not quality? Can you imagine how miserable that existence is? Yes, no? What do you think? That would not be fun, right? Well, here's something you can be happy about as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't change our job description. He tells us who He is with perfect clarity. He tells us what pleases Him. He tells us what will honor Him. He tells us what will dishonor Him. And that makes serving Him a joy. We know who God is. We know what God wants. Now, be honest with me. Are we good at doing what He wants? Not so much. Not so much. We have a sinful nature still running through us, don't, don't we? But isn't it nice that you can know what God wants of you? Aren't you glad you don't have to wonder what might God want me as a believer in Jesus to be? Well, in the section of Malachi that we've been studying for the past few weeks... From chapter 1, verse 6 to 2, verse 9, there's a whole little unit in this prophecy. And the Lord there is reproving the priests of Israel for their unfaithfulness. Because those priests failed to honor and fear the Lord rightly. And that led to the people of Israel failing to honor and fear the Lord rightly. So they participated in unacceptable forms of worship with offerings that were unacceptable. And then two weeks ago, we looked at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, and there we saw the Lord really laser-focused in on the priests themselves. And in that discussion, we took note that God has called all followers of Jesus a kingdom of priests. And, and, and we, as believers in the Lord Jesus, do participate in the priesthood of all believers. And Jesus, of course, is our great and holy high priest. Jesus made the only offering for sin, the only blood offering for sin that would ever purchase pardon for the people of God. So you and I don't have to go out and kill animals to try to cover our sins, which I'm glad about, right? Aren't you? That's good. But as a kingdom of priests, we do have roles and responsibilities to fill. We have a job description. So two weeks ago, I shared with us that we are called to live as priests, as a kingdom of priests, and I shared with you that there are consequences of failing to honor God as he has called us to do. And that was what we saw in verses 1 through 4 of Malachi chapter 2. This morning, we're going to conclude the look at Malachi 2, 1 through 9, and we're going to see the criteria for serving faithfully. And these are going to be things that we see that are part of the job description for followers of Jesus. And it's right here in these warnings from God to the priests of Malachi's day. So if you're ready, we'll take down three main points under the idea of the criteria of serving as the priests of God. Okay. Point number one, find life and peace with God. Find life and peace with God. I'm going to read 4 through the beginning of verse 5, which says, So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. 
So God is speaking here to the priests of Malachi's day, somewhere around what, 430, something like that, B.C. And God points the priests back to his covenant. Now, in the Old Testament, there's a whole lot of covenant language going on. You know that, right? In Genesis 9, God made a covenant in which he said, I will never destroy the entire earth with a flood again. That's a covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham. God reaffirmed that covenant with Abraham, saying, Abraham, you will father a nation, and through the nation you father, I'm going to send one person into the world who will bless every nation. That's the promise of the Messiah coming through the nation of Israel. Then at Mount Sinai in Exodus, God entered into a covenant with the people of Israel where he said, I will be your God and you will be my people and here are the rules that you need to keep in order to faithfully serve me. But what we don't see in Genesis and Exodus is a lot of language about Levi having his own covenant. But we know this. God chose the tribe of Levi, the Levites, to serve a special purpose as priests. The Levites were to be the tribe of the priests. The Levites would not possess any land as a tribe, but they would be the people responsible to tend and to guard the tabernacle of the Lord. So these men, with no physical borders to call their own, they were highly honored by God. Um, in Exodus chapter 32, when Moses, you remember Moses went up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments? Do y'all remember what the people of Israel did when Moses went up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments? They decided they would forge a golden calf and worship it. Moses comes back down, and Moses then cries out, Who will stand with me on the side of the Lord? And you know which tribe came and stood with Moses? It was the tribe of Levi. And the Levites strapped on their swords and they executed the justice of God against a wicked and rebellious people. And there, God began to uniquely set apart this tribe for service in a way that we hadn't seen before. In Numbers chapter 25, one, a, a, a Levite, a descendant of Aaron, a, a man named Phineas demonstrates his zeal for God and the law of God in a very similar way to what we saw at the golden calf incident. And listen to what God says about Phineas in Numbers 25, 11-13. God says, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him, here's an important wording, my covenant of peace. And it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. So we have covenant language starting to ring around the Levites, even if that's still not exactly saying I made a covenant with Levi. By the time of Nehemiah, though, a thousand years later, we are seeing references with clarity to the special priestly covenant relationship that God has with the Levites, that the Levites have with the Lord. You can see Nehemiah 13, 29 for a reference to that. But with all this in mind, here's what we remember. 
Here's the problem with the priests of Malachi's day. They were Levites. They were to play the role of the priests in Israel, but in Malachi's day, we've already seen in chapter 1 and again at the beginning of chapter 2, they will not take the worship of the Lord seriously. And God says, as He judges these wicked, careless priests, His covenant with Levi is going to stand. God's word and God's promises are going to stand. God is not going to let this group of faithless priests in any way keep him from being faithful to his own promises. God will be faithful to bless exactly where he promised he would bless and God will be faithful to judge exactly where he promised he would judge. He will keep his terms of his covenant perfectly. You know, what I think is interesting, though, is what the Levites should have been considering. We see it in verse 5. What kind of covenant is this that God made with them? I mean, you all know, don't you, that there are some people who just hate being under obligation. Are you that kind of person, by the way, the kind of person that just can't stand it if somebody has authority over you? If you are, there's probably a problem. But there are people out there that will do anything in their power to get out from under anybody, somebody else's authority. There are people who hate the idea of being held to the terms of an agreement. They just can't stand it. And I understand it if it's a really bad agreement, right? Man, I went out from under this. You know, this is a bad agreement I'm in. But what kind of agreement did God make with the Levites, with the priests? He says in verse 5, My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. God's covenant with Levi was not a bad covenant. It wasn't harsh. It wasn't a covenant of death and destruction. It wasn't a covenant of, of wrath and cruelty. No, God's covenant with Levi was a covenant of life and peace. And God delivered his priests life and peace. And God had been faithful and the priests were not. Now, now you and I sitting here today are not Levites. But, as we said already, if you're a believer in Jesus, you are a believer living in the age of the new covenant, and everyone who is in Christ makes up together the priesthood of all believers. First Peter chapter 2, verses 5, verse 9, Revelation gave us the same things. Chapter 1. Now here's the good news. Here's, here's the really good news if you're fading on me with priest discussion. And some of you, I fear, are fading with priest discussion. All of us have upon our lives a covenant, if we're Christians, of life and peace. Now before we move on, before we look at the responsibilities that you and I bear if we're Christians under the covenant of life and peace, I want to take a moment to be sure that everyone who hears this message understands how to have life and peace with God because those are good things, right? You can have life and peace with God. Or you can have death and enmity from God. 
Which one would you prefer? Life and peace, death and hatred. You choose. Yeah. Let's go with the life side, right? This is not hard. All around the world, people believe in the God who made us. In fact, the Bible says there's not a person on earth who hasn't been given enough evidence to know that God is. But all around the world, the people who know that God is still come up with their own variety of different ideas of how to have life and peace with God. Some people think that they can be made right with God through acts of religious worship. Have you ever met those people before? If you don't think you have, I promise you, you have. They think if they sing enough, if they give enough, if they pray enough, if they dance in the Spirit, if they make a sacrifice, if they participate in some priest making a sacrifice, if, if they just be good. You know anybody that thinks if they're just nice enough? That that will gain them peace with God. But those are not the way. Neither have they ever been the way. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. No amount of good deeds will ever make you right with God. And think about it for a second. What do you learn when you try your hardest to be good? You learn that you're not good enough to match God's perfection. Husbands, it's Father's Day, right? You fatherly fathers out there. You ever try just to be good? I'm just going to be on good behavior and as long as I'm on really good behavior, everyone in my house is going to be happy with me. How long does your good behavior last? Isn't it true that your good behavior just proves to you that you ain't good at good behavior? Right? I could ask your wives. How then do we get life if our attempts to follow the rules only expose the sinfulness that runs deep? How do we get peace with God? You know what the answer is? This is one of those times that the Sunday school answer is the answer. Jesus! Jesus. That's right! Eric knew. I can't believe that you beat Summer to it, truth be told. Romans 5 verses 1 and 2 say this. Therefore, and listen to this, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It's Jesus who gives us peace. Now, the covenant was a covenant of peace and what else? Life. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. What is it to have peace with God? It is to no longer be at odds with God. It is to no longer be the enemy of God. Do you want to stand as the enemy of God? No. It is to become the friend of God, to have peace with God. It is to become the child of God, to have peace with God. What about life from God? Life from God means that you are no longer under the sentence of death because of your sin. Though the wages of sin is death, 
though all who have ever sinned in any way deserve the penalty of eternal death. That's our just punishment from God. God gives life to the ones He saves through Jesus Christ. So think about this. All of us, all of us, young or old, small or great, rich or poor, all of us have failed to live up to God's perfection. And that earns death and the wrath of God. But God sent Jesus to take our punishment and Jesus went to the cross and he bore death on our behalf. And Jesus went to the cross and suffered the fury of God for our sins even though he never sinned. And Jesus welcomes all who will come to him in faith and repentance. He gives us life, true life, everlasting life with God instead of giving us the eternal death that we have earned. He gives us peace with God. He transfers us from the category of enemy of God to friend of God, at peace with God, beloved by God, welcomed by God. That's the category you want to be in. So for you and me to get any of what is to come in this message right, it has to start here. You have to have life and peace with God through Jesus Christ. How do I do it? Believe that you're a sinner. Do you have any trouble believing you're a sinner, by the way? If not, ask a family member. They'll help. (laughs) Believe you need mercy from God. Understand that there's not a single thing you can do on your own to gain the favor of God. But also believe this. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. Believe that Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin. Believe that Jesus rose from the grave and is alive right now. Believe that Jesus can and will save all who come to him. And repent. Turn away from living for yourself or by yourself. Stop thinking you can make your own way to God. Just run to Jesus and fall on his grace. Ask Jesus, Jesus, please save me. Entrust your soul to Jesus and Jesus alone. Come to Jesus, be saved, and you will find yourself in a covenant of life and peace with God. That's good news, isn't it? All right, so what do we do once we've got the covenant of life and peace with God over us? Once we're part of the priesthood of all believers, what do we do? Well, there's all kinds of stuff that we're going to have to do that God told the priests of Malachi's day to do, and we're going to find out that they actually apply to us too because they're exactly in keeping with the role of a Christian. So point number two. By the way, Alan's right. His is going to have to come a little bit later. Point number two, fear God. Write that down if you're not a point. You got to know this, guys. Fear God is still your command. Look at verse 5, second part. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. Do you remember Malachi chapter 1 from a few weeks ago? God asked the priest, where is the fear? Do my name. And we unpacked that concept a bit. We had a, had a message on May 19th where we talked about honor and fear of God, the glory of God and the fear of God. You can look it up if you want to. The priests of Malachi's day were not rightly fearing God. 
though fearing God is completely their duty. And without belaboring the point, the call to rightly fear God has never gone away. For you and me today, even if you are in Christ, we are most certainly called to be God-fearers. So you've got to ask, what does it mean to fear God? There's more than one kind of fear out there. You know that's true, right? There's, there, there's the fear that some of you have when you see a spider, or a mouse, or a snake, or when you're up on top of a ladder. And there's a fear that is awe-filled that changes your behavior. There's more than one kind of fear of God. One fear of God is the fear of judgment, the fear that He will hurt you. That's the kind of fear that makes a person want to run and hide from what they fear, right? That was the fear that had Adam run and hide in the garden. Now listen to me because I don't want you to miss this. The fear of wanting to run and hide is actually kind of right for those who have refused to be under the grace of God. Do you get that? Now, I'm not saying you should run from God because you can't run far enough, fast enough to get away from Him. But that fear makes sense if you are not forgiven by Him. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you should tremble at the idea that you will one day face God. God is holy. God is just. God will judge you if you refuse His grace. But in Christ, in Christ we no longer fear the condemnation of God. We don't fear God in such a way that we would want to run and hide from God. Instead, the kind of fear that we have moves us toward respect toward a desire to honor the Lord. Our fear of God calls us to never, ever want to treat God as small or unimportant. If your life treats God as small, you don't fear God. But proper fear of God means that you're afraid to ever make it look like God is not great. We don't fear that God will smash us. Jesus took that kind of judgment on our behalf. But what we fear is we fear to shine a false light on the Lord. We want to show that God is infinitely great, infinitely wonderful, infinitely glorious. And we fear God in such a way that we shiver at the concept of ever failing to honor Him. Not because we fear He's going to take something from us, but because we just don't want to do it. And another part of fear is the concept of awe. And we see that at the end of verse 5. To fear God is to be in awe of God, is to see God as awesome, as enormous, as infinite, as overwhelming, as magnificent. This is the kind of fear that takes your breath away. That's stunning. I wouldn't mess with that. It's the kind of fear that makes those who see the holiness of God in the Bible fall to their knees and bow before Him. It's fear that looks like this. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, there are angels around the throne. It says, day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, guys seated around the throne, they fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That, friends, is the fear of God. To see the glory and perfection of God in such a way that it makes you tremble, that it makes you bow, that it makes you worship, that it calls you to obey, that is the fear of God. To desire to live only in a way that will show that God is great and number one, that is the fear of God. Well, Malachi called the priests of his day to fear God. But friends, we're children of God in the New Testament, right? We're priests of God in Christ. Do you think we're called to fear God? You betcha. God is as worthy of holy fear today as ever in eternity past. So let this make you think. Does your life display the fear of God? Do your choices that you make show the world around you that you rightly tremble at the glory of God? What would have to change in your life for it to properly show that you respect God and are in awe of His perfection? If you're struggling to fear God rightly, I know of no better way to help you start than to call you to the Word of God and to call you to prayer. Open the Word. Read about the glory of God. Remind yourself that God is absolutely perfect. Remember that God is holy. Remember that He hates sin. Remember His all-consuming purity And then compare that to your sinfulness and tremble, kneel, thank God for mercy. Once again, yield your life to the honor of God. Fear God. Third point, third point, which should be three points, but I don't have time to make point three three points. Know, K-N-O-W, know, teach, and obey God's word. Know, teach, and obey God's word. Listen to verses 6 through 9. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts, and so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. 
The faithful priest of God had the responsibility to teach the people of God the word of God. This has always been the case. And we can see right here, this is something that God affirmed in the priests of Levi's day and which was not happening in Malachi's day. Look at verse 6, talking about a faithful priest. True instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was found in his lips. A true priest should guard knowledge is what we see in verse 7. Put those things together. What do we see? If you're going to be a faithful priest, you have to know the word of God. You cannot have true instruction on your lips. You cannot guard knowledge with your mouth if you are unfamiliar with what the Word of God says. The one who will not study the Word, the one who will not put himself or herself under faithful teaching of the Word, the one who will not give himself or herself to knowing the Word cannot serve as a faithful priest. And let me say this to you. We all learn at different levels and different speeds, right? There are people who are smarter than you are. True? Okay. So you're not called to be the smartest person in the room. I'm not called to be the smartest person in the room. Which is good because I'm not. But. You're called to learn at your level and put forward effort to hear and learn and understand and know the Word of God. It is your job. I don't care if you don't like to read. I don't care if you don't like to learn. Learn to love to learn because priests of God learn the Word of God, know the Word of God, and God has called Christians to be the priesthood of all believers. Now, I'm not unsympathetic if learning is hard for you, and you may learn in different ways from other people, but honestly, can you learn the Word a little more than you know it right now? Do it. But being faithful involves more than just knowing the Word, doesn't it? The faithful priest obeys the Word of God. The Lord says of Levi, he walked with me in peace and uprightness, verse 6. But of the evil priests of the 5th century B.C., God says, but you have turned aside from the way, verse 8, and you do not keep my ways, verse 9. So it looks like obedience matters, not just knowing, but doing has a factor. Does, does that surprise you? Shouldn't. Then verse 6 also shows us that the faithful priest turns many from iniquity. His words, which are full of biblical instruction, they're supposed to be a tool that the Lord uses to turn other people away from sin. And that means that a faithful priest not only knows the word, not only obeys the word, but rightly applies the word of God to the lives of others too. He helps other people see what the Word of God has to say about the issues of life, and He will instruct people how to follow the Lord. He will use the Word of God, rightly applied, to warn people of the danger that they face if they refuse to follow the Lord. A faithful priest is to be a messenger from God to those who do not know or hear the Word of God. Earlier in this chapter, by the way, God spoke some really harsh truth to the priest. Do you guys remember that from two weeks ago? The Lord told the people, the priests, I'm going to spread on your faces the dung from your offerings and have you carried out with the garbage. Ugh. Why? They would not do what faithful priests were supposed to do. 
verses 8 and 9, God reiterates it. You priests of Israel, you are facing my judgment because you will not keep my word. You have not faithfully taught the word of God. And then it says, it's something in the way that they've taught has led people not to righteousness, but to stumbling. By the way, you guys need to be paying attention because there are people out there right now who will hold up a Bible in one hand, grab theories from the world in another hand, and they will teach people to stumble and walk away from the Word with it. Pay attention. It says they've spoken with partiality, which means they have, in the way that they have taught, favored one group while not favoring another. That's evil. Maybe they were favoring the rich because the rich could benefit them while being harsh to the poor. Maybe they were favoring one people group above another. I don't know. But there is not to be any partiality in the teaching of the Word of God. God says, I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your teaching. So here's what we know. The priests in Malachi's day were in trouble. You get that feeling, don't you? Whether it's the dung on the faces or I'm going to make you abased and despised. That gives you a hint that they're in trouble. Here's the question. We're not the priests in Malachi's day, so does this matter? I'll tell you this, there's no doubt that what God wanted the faithful priests to do in these verses is exactly what God calls faithful believers to do today, so at least we can learn that. And there is no doubt that God wants faithful believers today to avoid the failings of the priests of that era. So you ask yourself, do you believe God wants you to know His Word well so that you can have faithful instruction on your lips? Is that a call for Christians? You betcha it is. There's no doubt that that's our responsibility. Throughout the entirety of the Bible, God pronounces blessing after blessing on those who read and understand and proclaim His Word. 2 Timothy 2 verse 15 says to Christians, Do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of Truth. You and I, believers, are to rightly handle the word of truth. We need to know Scripture. We need to study Scripture. We need to be wise in how we apply Scripture. Okay, what about the call to obey? Does God call us to obey too? You sure that's not just Old Testament? That sounds pretty Old Testament to me. John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Does anybody need me to unpack that, or is that pretty straightforward for you? If you love Jesus, you keep, you obey His commands. That is the calling of God on the lives of followers of Jesus. Okay, what about the call to teach other people? At least that doesn't apply to you, right? Because, I mean, teaching other people is the job for for preachers and elders and maybe missionaries, right? But not you, right? Matthew 28, 18 through 20 reads, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he has the authority to say what he's about to say. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. How, Jesus? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus claimed to have all the authority in the universe. That's a lot. 
He commanded his followers to take part in making disciples. And part of doing that job is teaching others to obey all that has been commanded. This does apply to you, Christian. How do I know it applies to you? Let's just ask a context question. When you hear the Great Commission that I read to you, don't you love it when Jesus says, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age? You like that? Does that apply to you? If that applies to you, then you better take to heart the fact that teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you also applies to you. Because Jesus said it in the same breath. If you want to say teaching doesn't apply to me, then you can reject the other two, I guess. That would be bad interpretation. Jesus has commanded you and me to make disciples by teaching people the true word of God. Again, that's how you make disciples. You don't make disciples by compromising with the world and making them like you. You make disciples by telling the truth according to the Word of God. Now, this does not mean when I say teaching them, that doesn't mean that you're ever going to fill a formal teaching role. Some of you will never do that. You may never stand behind a lectern or for a classroom or a pulpit to a congregation and deliver a message. That's okay. But if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are therefore part of the priesthood of all believers, you better bring the word to God to, of God to bear in your conversations with other people. You need to be talking scripture at home. You need to be talking scripture outside of the house. You need to be talking scripture with your friends, with your family, with anybody who will listen. You should learn from the more mature believers around you. You should teach the less mature believers around you. You should constantly be asking, how does God's word apply to whatever situation I'm in or whatever topic I'm thinking about? And you should constantly be helping other people to know how the word of God applies to the situation that they're in. Now, y'all, we live in a, word where the, or a world where the Word of God is ignored, twisted by false teachers, abused, despised. But Christians, may you and I never be part of that problem. May we instead love the Word of God and bring it out with boldness. Jason read for us, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 4, 5 this morning. Let's hear it one more time. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God, that's all y'all, may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you, here comes, the, here comes the commission, in the presence of God, it matters, and of Christ Jesus, it really matters, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, I don't know you can get stronger than that, what? Preach the word. Be ready in season when it's popular and out of season when it's not. What do I do? What if I don't have a pulpit? What do I do? You reprove, you rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. 
But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul told Timothy, preach the word. Jesus commissioned the church to teach the nations to obey his commands. Peter reminded us that we are a kingdom of priests to take the message to the globe. How can we not know the word of God, obey the word of God, and teach the word of God? Well, the priests in Malachi's day were pretty messed up. But that's really not what primarily concerns me. Are you and I messed up like them? That's the question. That's my concern. Find life and peace with God in Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus, please turn from your sin, believe, and come to Jesus to be saved. If you have come to Jesus, join with the people of God in fulfilling what God calls us to do. Fear God. Treat Him with awe. Treat Him with respect. Treat Him with reverence. And that will include that you will know and you will teach and you will obey the Holy Word of God. Let's pray together. Father, I say thank you for your word, for your goodness, for your grace. And I acknowledge here and now that we need you to make us able to be, to do the things you've called us uh, to be and to do. I pray for those who don't know you, and I do believe that there will be people who hear this message who are not in a relationship with you by grace through faith. I would ask you, God, to do a miracle to bring those people into a covenant of life and peace with you through Jesus. And I would also ask you, Lord, for all of us who are believers, give us proper fear of God. Let us not play around with you but respect you and honor you. And I would pray, God, for all of us that we would teach and know and obey the word. Give us faithfulness. And here's the thing, Lord, we know we have failed you already. In truth, we will fail you in the future from time to time. Thank you that you, by grace, hold us fast in your love. You keep us and you continue to send us. Make us faithful people. Grow the church. Bring honor to your name. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.